0: Think, what, if you were here first service? Page 169, Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning at verse 15. When you find your way there, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're king. You're king. And you are sitting in the best chair, because you're king. And you are eating the best food, because you're king. And you're 18, by the way and people like you, and things have gone well for the first 10 years of your reign. But you got a building project going on, and the guys who are doing the building project, they found something, they brought it to you, and they're reading it to you, and it's been pretty good. It's about how there is a God and how even though there's evil in the world, God is for mankind. He saved us from a flood. Uh, he chose a man named Abraham to reveal himself to. And then through Abraham, he set apart a kingdom for himself called Judah. The king's like, yeah, bring it. I'm actually the king of Judah. This is good. Son of David. This is good. And then the history um, you know, of his kingdom in the back of his mind, I'll hear a little bit. What happens after all the blessings and the promises are given to him, and then he gets to verse 15, right? This is the end. He's been listening for hours. But as Deuteronomy has gone further and further, because he's going from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and that's it. As Deuteronomy goes further and further, he has to, as the king, realize, oh, we haven't done that. We haven't done that. Oh, we have laws that do the opposite of that. And then it gets to this part. I imagine he's not sitting back in the chair with a cherry in his mouth at this point. Right, I'm just going to read for a bit. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket, and cursed your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall be you when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, Confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on the account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed." The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for all the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of the mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard. But you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. The nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts will consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for the olive shall drop off. Your fathers, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And the cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because. You did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old, no show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and of the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall leave you no grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds of the younger flock until they have caused you to perish. I'm going to spare you the next paragraph. Let's go ahead to 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in the book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grieving and lasting. And you will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also, and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. As the Lord took delight in doing you good, and multiplying you, For the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Can you imagine where the king is at this point now, right? Like I'm not in the chair anymore. (laughs) I'm on the ground. I'm probably already like, stop, stop. We're stop wasting time. Let's go get everybody to hear this, right? Like, uh, and again, what does he do? He tears his clothes, the text tells us. A sign of complete helplessness. A sign of of utter incapacity and failing. And and this is where I I want us, St. Paul, in our Reformation celebration to be. Because that's what the Reformation always is. Have you heard the story? We always like to tell these stories about Dr. Luther on Reformation. He was a good man, and I don't want to bemoan his name. I'm, I'm sad. His name has been abused for far too long. But there's a really nice story about him, uh, about the day that he died. He, he, he was important enough that like, when they know he's going to die, they, they literally have people standing there to write down everything he says so they can record his last words and all this stuff. Like it's, he's, he's very popular. Yeah? After they do that and he dies they find on his body, in his pocket, a little piece of paper. And it's just scribbled on it. It's in German. I won't, I'll spare you my German. Uh, But it just says, we are beggars. This is true. And I I might also point out the 95 Theses, which you probably don't know and have never heard read, nor do you need to waste the time with them. They're not that important, actually. The first one's very good, though. It says this, that, that... When Jesus Christ preached repent, he meant that all of your life as a Christian is going to be repentance. All the time. Everlasting repentance. Or, can we just say it this way? Reformation. We were made with a certain form in the image of God, by the hand of God. Good, he called us. And then, flawed, we became. And, that form that was lost, he chose from the very moment, Genesis 3, to reform it by, you know the story, sending his only begotten son into the flesh, right? And so in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth born in Bethlehem, mankind is reformed. I mean, literally, he didn't have a dad, right? He didn't have a father, born of a virgin, reformed, a new humanity as an emblem of what, All religion in Christ is, which is the reformation of our sin into grace, right? Or the covering of our grace with the reformation, excuse me, the covering of our sin with the reformation of grace that leaves behind uh, not sin anymore, but righteousness, trust, right? Truth, all these things. So when Josiah is there hearing these words, the most powerful and beautiful thing about all of it is the word itself drives him to the one thing that could do something about all of it, which is to call out to God and say, can I have some help, please? So again, we are beggars, this is true, is not a statement of we are beggars, this is true. It's we are more than conquerors, this is true, as beggars as beggars, with nothing but my God, no money, no sword, no wit, just my God. And now the beggar that I am is a king, a prophet, a priest, a son of the living almighty. What a thing to believe. What a reformation for your heart. What treadmill are you running on trying to prove to yourself you're good enough for who? And the reformation that we have in Christ Jesus is there's no more reforming to do. It's being done to you. That's who God is. He sees you where you are, having made you to be who you are, having allowed the sin to be upon you so that who you are now is part of that. And he knew all this was coming so that he could make you better still. And that's the great mystery. That's a great mystery. God did not plan the evil. And how that works out, I don't know. But what I do know is that wherever the evil seeks to arise, God creates harmony. He turns it into harmony every single time. And so then the story of reformation, the story of your heart being transformed from tyranny to harmony under Christ is also the story of our church, the gathering of we who believe in every single age. Every single age, every single generation, every era, every decade, every year, we all are constantly taking ownership of our faith again as we hear it and believe it and say it again. When you look at the history of that as the Bible alone details it, but you can see it in real history too, there is a tendency for reformation to go really well when God sends his spirit to waken up and thrive in the church with life and truth, the word. And what happens is things get good. Christians survive. They endure. They build. They love. They care. They do well. And then they're gathered around by all sorts of other people who say, I'll be a Christian too. I want a life like that. And smash, boom, finish, someone starts to say, well, we don't need this, and so we don't need that, do we? That would drive people away. And, you know, another 10, 15, 40, 70 years later, and no one knows there's a Bible. They don't even know what it is. And that's the most amazing thing about Josiah's story. They lost the, they lost the whole book. How do you even do that? And yet I, I say that, and then I, I wonder, well, what would happen? What would happen with the great catastrophe that would rock the world? Say, I a war that would involve multiple world powers shooting bombs into a sky that would leave the sky dark for three years, make food very hard to come by. It's a real enough story, right? How do you face that? How do you walk in this? You have to believe that from the start, Jesus has a plan. And his plan is that his word is going to enliven you as his congregation, and that means the church, so that today you face whatever story anyone else says about how tomorrow is going to be, even if it includes no sky anymore, with the knowledge that nothing, nothing is going to outlast Jesus' word. His word never changes. And every time the enemies are at the gates of, to destroy Jerusalem, the whole reason is because no one's even asked for help yet from God. No one's asked. They don't go pray. So the lesson of Reformation, the lesson of Dr. Luther is not go be bold and nail something on a door, go shout and be bombastic and tell everyone how you're right. That's, that's not the lesson. That's not what a Lutheran should be known for. The lesson is that when Luther found the Psalms saying, I need your help, God. He just kept praying it. And God kept sending more answers from the text. And he say, Well, there, there's the answer. And, I mean, the craziest thing about, about Luther, last week I was sent or I was asked to go speak somewhere. And I was asked to speak about preaching. And I almost didn't talk about preaching at all. Um, if I had, this is what I should have said. Now, the reason I was asked to talk about preaching, because I, Jonathan Fisk, preach a little different than a lot of guys in the Missouri Synod, right? Like you've been around. It's a little different. You know what I do? I preach like Luther. You know how I know that? I read his sermons. You know what he does? Line by line. Tells you what it means. I just started doing that. Wow. I wonder how the Reformation happened. Oh, no, I don't. It's pretty easy. The Bible is true. And it wakes us up. And inspires us. It makes us want to do more. Of course, the second use of the law is there and we find ourselves crushed and broken and not quite what we thought we'd be. And yet then there's the salve and Jesus saying, come, you who are weary, I'll give you rest. And that's what Josiah gets then, yes? The promise of rest. And for another 10, 12, 13 years, he does very well. He leads the kingdom. Uh, They celebrate a Passover unlike any there had ever been. It's a beautiful story. Uh, the end of Josiah's story is a little less exciting sad. It's one of those ones where you like you hit your head and you're like, why? Why? Um, and for a while, I didn't even understand why. The end of the text tells us that God and Huda, the prophet, promises to Josiah that he'll die in peace. Well, you read on, he doesn't die in peace. He dies in a war, and he gets killed by a pharaoh. Wow. Um, oh, Uh, Is God wrong? It's kind of like like the the third grade question a little bit. Well, no, so there must be another answer, right? Um, And and there is one. It's clear that what happens is he's not supposed to go to war against this guy Pharaoh. This Pharaoh is not coming to attack him, Josiah. He's coming to attack uh, Nebuchadnezzar, actually, uh, Babylon, Nabopolassar at that time, really. Um, and, And he actually sends Josiah a letter. He's like, dude, I got no fight with you. What are you doing? Why, why are you going to fight me? And Josiah's like, I'm going to stop you from going after that guy. And then they go, to, they go to war and Josiah dies. So, but Jesus promised he'd die in peace. Yeah, well, he chose not to stay at peace. It's a weird thing. Just one more flaw, right? Every good king, every good king but one has that flaw. And Josiah's is that he saw the promise, I'll die in peace as therefore I can't lose a war. Oops. And then shortly thereafter, I mean, it's tumble, tumble, boom, boom. Jerusalem walls come, come down and everything else Huldah said comes to pass. And that sets up a, a great travail of a time during which there's very little understanding of who's to teach the synagogue really arises as laity that are scattered, have to care for their own faith. They don't have pastors. Not everyone has a Bible. How, you know, so you get together and, and you read the few Bibles that you got, the Old Testament that you got, that's the synagogue, right? Uh, to uh, to sin, uh, uh, I can almost say that the word S-Y-N on the front of synagogue is with, and the agog is like a gathering. So it's a lot like the word church. Um during that time, what I can tell you is that a lot of the lifeblood of the laity, it is not the teacher of the law who has a copy of Torah he gets to look at, because no one else does, because they're expensive. <laughs> um, but what you do have is you have a regular learning of, by heart, the Psalms and, and the Proverbs. And it is the wisdom of the books of the middle of the Bible the wisdom books that drive the people through the intertestamental times to, to write other books like the wisdom of Solomon and Sarah and other kind of uh, pre Christian resources from the Hebrews. Um, but what I want to do then here, as we looked at Proverbs 6 this morning for a moment, is really do go line by line through that interit from Proverbs chapter 6. You can look at it in the bulletin if you like. It's a little bit different in the Bible, especially with the different translation. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, all we're doing here is we're touching down on the word of God isn't as hard as you think and is your bread for being the Reformation today where you are. All right. So Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 to 24, 27, and 28. And we'll we'll probably look at the middle there. Proverbs 20, or 6, verse 20. My son. It's 531. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. It's not the first time that idea has come across here. And just to translate it, it means, hey, read the Bible. <laughs> and that's what it means, right? Don't let it get away from you. Don't let it escape you. The flesh is a beggar and a thief And the spirit of the Antichrist prowls around like a roaring lion, trying to twist you into knots of shame. So read the Bible, he says. Forsake it not. Verse 21, bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. I guess you could put a Bible verse on your T-shirt, but the idea is it's supposed to be in your head, meaning on your tongue. Meaning on your tongue. I was somewhere recently, I, I've been pushing you all to try to say things like "Hallelujah" more often, right? I don't, I don't care what praise word or Bible word it is you find, but it is pretty nice when I'm out in public and I hear someone say, Jesus Christ, which I heard recently, and right out of my mouth, "Hallelujah" came right out. That's a nice thing. That's because I am trying to bind that word to my heart. I'm trying to. I want to. Why? Because I'm tired. I told you this story, right? Like I had two moments in the last several years where I almost could have died, not really, pretty safe accidents, an accident in a car and a different one. And both times the word out of my mouth and not bringing with a J or an A began with an S. And if that had been my death, I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy with how how I met it. I'd rather shout Jesus Christ, not as the curse word I heard the other day, but in fact as my holy God, knowing he'll answer my prayers. Because this is also the story of the Reformation and Josiah's Reformation. It's that Jesus hears your prayers. He answers your prayers. Lutheranism sometimes acts like God's this faraway guy who sort of hears you and might help you, But sort of theology of the cross, um, you're just supposed to, life's going to suck, so suck it up. But see, that's just not Jesus. And, And it's really not the God of the Old Testament either. The God of the Old Testament is just like, hey, you know why all this stuff's happening to you that's so bad? You're doing it to yourself. Because I stopped helping you. Because you stopped asking me. Because you started doing it to yourself. And I said, don't. And you said, I'm going to. And so I let you. And now here you are. And at any moment, like up to the grave, it's, I'm sorry, help. And yes, there's not a moment where he's like, well, you should have. You didn't enough yet. There's none of that. It's always come to me, you who are weary. It's always free. It's always more. Yeah. Tie it to your neck. Bind it to your heart. Don't let it get away from you. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will they will talk with you. And the, the words will be with you when you're not ready for it. That's the value of it. The Holy Spirit guides you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and reproofs of discipline the way of life. You're not going to get away from Stories. You're going to walk out of this building, and the rest of the day, someone's going to say, I this, or they that, or you this. And then the tube will come on, and they'll say, they this, and over there that, and this that. Stories. Stories, stories, stories. How to walk through all the stories and know which ones are true and which ones are not. And again, the promise of the word, that when you study the word, it really won't matter. You can get lied to, and you'll come through it okay. They can steal from you. It's going to be all right. They can even kill you. It's going to kind of be glorious, really. So, like, where's the fear? Well, we haven't bound these things to our hearts, or we don't see the commandment as a light. We pay lip service to it, perhaps. To preserve you from the evil woman, this this woman of folly, who is really the devil in Proverbs, uh, but she's painted as, you know, wearing Prada and all that um, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, the flattering tongue. So to see that so much of what the world does to deceive you is it, it does flatter you. It flatters you It plays on your pride so that it can shame you later. Right. And the word of God is there so that you'll be able to hear it. Oh, they're flattering me. Look at them. Why, you know, uh, it doesn't mean you have to say anything to them. You just don't get deceived by the power of this wisdom that then is inside of you because by rebuke and discipline is there every single day. Uh, it goes on to talk more about this adulteress. So we're going to leave her uh, there for now and continue with uh, the gospel reading for the day, uh, which is from Luke chapter 4. And I'd like you to turn there in your Bible as well this morning. And I'll have a page number for you in just a moment. Uh, page uh, 859, 860. Uh, the text starts on 860 but we're gonna we're gonna start on 859. And I you know all through this weekend, I keep trying to put this thought together and I wanted it in every sermon and I just I can't seem to get it out straight. Um, and it, it's this idea that the word of God is never going to stop bringing life. The only reason why we don't experience life is because we don't trust the word of God. That doesn't mean you're going to go into death and never feel pain again. It's just that death isn't death anymore. And this is the lie. This is why 2020 woke people up is we realize like how afraid all of us were of death, like way too much for Christians, way too much. And, and we still are really, but I think we're repenting. I don't think we're alone uh, in, in seeing that the death, it's just, it's just coming, it's just coming. And you can face it like, well, someday, okay, whatever. Not me, not today. Or you can face it as well, what if it were today? I mean, did, did what I do this morning, did I, what I did this morning, what, was it worth it? You know, uh, last night, we were invited to a, a little shindig, and um, we were going to go drive. And, and, you know, the times being what they are, my my dear frugal wife says, uh, should we take the Prius? <laughs> you know, uh, it's got good mileage, you know. Um, and uh, that morning, I had said to her, you know, all day, Meredith, I want to live as if the world's going to end before tomorrow morning. I'm just going to just pretend like tomorrow morning is the last day and we all go home to heaven tomorrow morning. And so she asked me, you are going to drive the Prius. I look at her, the world's ending tomorrow. I'm driving the Jeep. I'm taking the Jeep. Why do I tell this story? I don't want you to gratify your flesh. I don't think that's what I'm doing. I do want you to live your life freely and under the fatherhood of God or in what he gives you is yours to share and to love and to enjoy without fear that it's taken from you tomorrow but with the knowledge that when it is taken from you, because it will be, you will let it go with joy because you know more is coming. That's who God is. And that goes all the way down to the last breath you take. You know more is coming. Now, Luke chapter four is where Jesus is gonna kind of bring us home today. Now, the Reformation isn't about Old Testament Israel and it's not about Dr. Luther. It's about Jesus Christ being king of the church and having his word reign. If there is a problem with the Roman Catholic church at any time, it's because they say things that are the opposite of the Bible. And whenever they say that, they're wrong. Right? And the, th- the beef with us and them is that they told us we couldn't stay in their church if we st- still believe the Bible. We had to leave. And they kicked us out with like swords. And then we moved across the ocean and became neighbors, right? What a weird history that is. But that said, the Roman Catholic Church remains a Christian church. And if you can think in a big enough long game, I'd suggest to you that the Lutheran Reformation changed the Roman Catholic Church more than anybody realizes. It's as clear as this. They now have the Bible in their own language. The Pope was stopping that with swords and armies for decades, burning people, right? I mean, it's bad right now. And again, global thermonuclear war and a nuclear winter, that's that's a scary thing. But I'm not really worried about being flayed for teaching the Bible to you. It's not on my agenda. I got to worry about that one yet. But that's the world that they were living in in the Reformation. The world that Jesus is living in is just as brutal Rome was no joke. You know how you're not supposed to make a joke about terrorism going through the airport security, right? Now, you don't make a joke about Rome. Uh-uh. Now you're crucified. Uh, and thieves, crucified. Right? I mean, so they kept the law. Roads, they worked. You know, Water ran, all that kind of stuff. In that world, Jesus is a Hebrew. He's a Jew. He's amongst those who believe that if you commit adultery, like, you know, you're 16, you made a mistake, well, we throw rocks at you till you're dead. And It's a brutal world. That throwing rocks at them until they're dead, Jesus actually started that process back in Deuteronomy because, because if you let the leaven get out of control, if you let it be okay, if you just enable the bad behavior, guess what? It destroys everything eventually. And you can watch that, right? It won't change much if we teach evolution in schools. It won't change much. Oh, it won't change much if we allow for no-fault divorce. It won't change much. Oh, we'll just tell the kids that it's okay if they use condoms. It won't change much. I mean, wow. And that's without the overseas conflicts. Jesus' world is as brutal and terrifying as that. And yet, the thing about Jesus, the thing that inspires me about Jesus when I look back at him without American eyes, like I take off the hallmark lenses, and I let the Old Testament Yahweh God be incarnate and then be this guy, what gets me about him is how this guy, he ain't afraid of anybody, ever. Not a wit. And to me, who I kind of cower before all of you, whether you know it or not, I always get this trembling in my knees. You know, it's just so beautiful to see this man. Who knows, it's good to be a man. And will always use it for good. Rarely for violence, although when necessary, but ever for the building up of the truth, which involves the preservation and care of the weak, which of course for him means saving us <laughs> from death, all of that. So what's going on in Luke at this point, after his temptation, we're, we're early, early, early in the story. Verse 14 Chapter four, he begins his ministry, it says in the the, the title there, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee, right? So he, he has the temptation with the devil and he comes back and he's on fire. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Now it does not mention his miracles here yet. But the implication of what happens next in Nazareth is that the miracles are happening here too uh, because his words aren't enough for the people of Nazareth, you see. They want a little more. But early on, Jesus comes out of the gate. He's told the devil, I don't care. Whatever you got, this world has nothing to offer me. I have a different kingdom to deal with. And wherever he goes, it's like golden nuggets just fall out of his mouth. He talks and everyone goes, whoa, what that guy said. And again, the political climate is such that he can't not be talking about politics when he talks about life. When he tells parables about growing crops and money and things like that, those are all tied to the life they had then, far more than we think of it. Uh, if I told you a parable about compounding interest rates and uh, the way that an insurance company has double layers of fees, right? Like that, that would like make sense, right? That's what he's doing. He's using their world. He's speaking about who they are. And he's pointing out then, every time he speaks, how he's not worried about what threat Caesar might bring or what the church authorities, that'd be the synagogue, might say. Instead, he just says stuff where they're, like, even his enemies are like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. Which is the promise of Proverbs, by the way, that that when you are, are wise, even your enemies will be at peace with you. I have a word for them. You want to hint, by the way, I'm not real good at this yet, but what your enemy never expects from you is a present, a smile, a kind word, and just you just leave before they're able to do anything else. You know. So who's your enemy? Where are they? Work, school, whatever, right? Just some offering and like a kind word about how cool they are over there. Not me and us, but what you did. That was amazing. And then move on. Um, there's a proverb about that too, by the way, and it happens to the prophets, blah, blah, blah. There's a path to wisdom with your enemies. Jesus is doing that. And he goes into this synagogue then in his hometown, Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, and you know that, right? and be called a Nazarene. As was his custom everywhere else, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So he presents himself as a reader. Not everyone in the synagogue would have been asked to read, but because he's teaching, he's clearly recognized as someone who is worth listening to. Uh, the history of rabbinic teaching and whether you were allowed to talk in church and all this is is pretty complex. I don't want to pretend I even know about it, um, but I do know uh, that when he stands up to read, he's kind of saying, "Okay, I can preach," and they're recognizing that, they're they're acknowledging that. So, can you imagine for a moment, like in? A pastor, maybe a vicar even, that'd be real good, a vicar from St. Louis Seminary is traveling through and he preaches for us one Sunday. So it's a little like that. And and since he's new and he's only written one sermon, you know, it's, we'll, we'll let him preach on the text he did his one sermon for, right? Um, so whatever. Jesus is there and they, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens it. Notice it's a scroll. He's got a roll a bit. And he finds... Uh, chapter 61. So put a marker in Luke for me and find your way back to chapter 61 of Isaiah. Let's see it there, uh, where he has it for us. That's going to be on uh, page 620 of your Bible, right near the end of Isaiah, chapter 60 through 66. It gets real excited. It's all types of beautiful pictures about paradise and the world to come. There's some scary stuff about the destruction of evil as well. I tend to like that stuff. Um, but chapter 61 is this proclamation of, of jubilee, uh, or it maybe says the year of the Lord's favor there in the ESV, the year of jubilee. Um, the year of jubilee is a requirement in the law, the Old Testament. Uh, every seven years, there's a forgiveness, uh, what, stipulation built into every financial contract, right? So you they basically, in theory, wouldn't be able to have a car loan for longer than seven years. I mean, they kind of figured that out for us too, didn't they? Uh, so if loans that go longer than that don't get paid off, Housing markets an interesting thought, as you think about that. But uh, they uh, in their country, they, they had to make it just all go away every seven years. And then every 49 years, every seven sevens, there was an even bigger absolution for everything. And the crops are supposed to be not grown for a year and all this other stuff that goes on. That's the year of Jubilee. And the whole point of it is God's going to bless you so much you don't even have to worry about it for a whole year. And your debts aren't even that big of a deal. Whatever that guy owed you, <laughs> whatever. It's just you know bullet points on the on the budget at this point. That's the promises that are given. Now, the year of Jubilee in the 49th, to my knowledge, never comes to pass in the history of Israel. Uh, they don't ever really receive blessings that go for more than 40 years. They always are falling away again. And so there's this whole kind of question about of, well, what happens in the year of Jubilee. Jesus is it. And this is that moment where can you see the the, the boldness of this man. Who knows a prophet's not welcome in his own town. He knows the one place he's guaranteed to not get listened to. And where does he go to start off telling them that he is here as the incarnate, Holy Spirit filled man of God to save the world, the Messiah. That's what he says. Huh? Verse, 60, uh, verse one of chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed, christened, Messiah to me Instead of a faint spirit, they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up ancient ruins. It shall raise up former devastations. It shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, I want a little past what Jesus read. He puts it down. He says, now today that all came true. That all came true, rebuilding buildings and cities, restoring the poor to salvation. It all came true in Jesus just saying it out loud. Well, what came true is he was anointed to achieve those things. His baptism, his beating up the devil proved it, and now he goes straight to his home. He says, I can do it. You know the story, so we won't quite go line by line there to see how they reject him. Notice when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? That means, can I say it? He's a bastard. And once upon a time, that meant, well, it's kind of like being a convict, only different. Different times now, I suppose. Uh, The fact remains that the spirit which is on Jesus, which is given in Christ, which is to believe that no matter what comes, you've been sent to do the work of God, which shall not fail, that spirit is the same one he promises to you. You're not going to go to the cross and get crucified for the sins of the world. No one's going to do that. The apostles got marked with some special deaths for that reason, and there are witnesses in history that get special deaths. But don't expect that. Expect that your life is a lot more like a king of Judah. And instead of coming into the inheritance once in a lifetime, you come into the inheritance every single day. Every single day you wake up with a kingdom called your body, and everything it affects And that kingdom is either worshiping Jesus Christ, your God, or it's not. And it is your discipleship, your discipline, your life, your hope, and frankly, your joy to reform it in the morning from what the flesh would have it be, which is recalcitrant and selfish and pissy, frankly. Mine is. How's yours? Mine is. Reform that into something gentle, understanding, giving, giving. Sacrificial, even. Yeah. That this is what your daily life is. This is therefore what your whole life is as well. It's no question that from cradle to grave, you are being brought from the reformation of your sin into righteousness. This through the forgiveness of Christ, this through the pouring out of his spirit into your heart, this through the life you live now, waiting for his return. And can you see? I'm just I'm just opening it further. I mean, you could apply this to your family, your household. There will be times and generations where faith is strong and faith is weak and faith is strong and faith is weak. When it's weak, what do you do? Repent. Come back. Don't get cast out. Faith gets strong again. This happens to congregations. The joy of being at St. Paul right now is that for all of our kind of minute size, we're hardly minute, but we're not large. We all know we're in a reformation. We all know that we were about to be destroyed. We all know that we decided rather than the wood, we'll keep the paper with the words. And now here we are experiencing some growth from it, and we're going to celebrate it today. And so why not believe that the same is true on every level? you want to reform the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? Amen to Jesus. You want to reform the Catholic Church in America? I'm on board with that one. I had a Roman Catholic priest tell me that. I said, amen, let's do it. Yeah. You want to reform what? Live the life of a Christian today. Reform your tongue. Reform your eyes. And then again, reform it all. Not because you're going to, but because you know He has. You're free. Just walk. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.